Part 2 of Chapter 1 of Evangelium Vitae. Am I my brother's keeper? A perverse idea of freedom. The panorama described needs to be understood not only in terms of the phenomena of death which characterize it, but also in the variety of causes which determine it. The Lord's question, What have you done? seems almost like an invitation addressed to Cain to go beyond the material dimension of his murderous gesture in order to recognize in it all the gravity of the motives which occasioned it and the consequences which result from it. Decisions that go against life sometimes arise from difficult or even tragic situations of profound suffering, loneliness, a total lack of economic prospects, depression, and anxiety about the future. Such circumstances can mitigate, even to a notable degree, subjective responsibility and the consequent culpability of those who make these choices, which in themselves are evil. But today, the problem goes far beyond the necessary recognition of these personal situations. It is a problem which exists at the cultural, social, and political level where it reveals its more sinister and disturbing aspect in the tendency ever more widely shared to interpret the above crimes against life as legitimate expressions of individual freedom to be acknowledged and protected as actual rights. In this way, and with tragic consequences, a long historical process is reaching a turning point. The process which once led to discovering the idea of human rights rights inherent in every person and prior to any constitution and state legislation, is today marked by a surprising contradiction, precisely in an age when the inviolable rights of the person are solemnly proclaimed and the value of life is publicly affirmed, the very right to life is being denied or trampled upon, especially at the more significant moments of existence, the moment of birth and the moment of death. On the one hand, the various declarations of human rights and the many initiatives inspired by these declarations show that at the global level, there is a growing moral sensitivity, more alert to acknowledging the value and dignity of every individual as a human being without distinction of race, nationality, religion, political opinion, or social class. On the other hand, these noble proclamations are unfortunately contradicted by a tragic repudiation of them in practice. The denial is still more distressing, indeed more scandalous, precisely because it is occurring in a society which makes the affirmation and protection of human rights its primary objective and its boast. How can these repeated affirmations of principle be reconciled with the continual increase and widespread justification of attacks on human life? How can we reconcile these declarations with the refusal to accept those who are weak and needy, or elderly, or those who have just been conceived. These attacks go directly against respect for life, and they represent a direct threat to the entire culture of human rights. It is a threat capable, in the end, of jeopardizing the very meaning of democratic coexistence. Rather than societies of people living together, Our cities risk becoming societies of people who are rejected, marginalized, uprooted, and oppressed. If we then look at the wider worldwide perspective, how can we fail to think 
that the very affirmation of the rights of individuals and peoples made and distinguished international assemblies is a merely futile exercise of rhetoric if we fail to unmask the selfishness of the rich countries, which exclude poorer countries from access to development or make such access dependent on arbitrary prohibitions against procreation, setting up an opposition between development and man himself. Should we not question the very economic models often adopted by states which, also as a result of international pressures and forms of conditioning, cause and aggravate situations of injustice and violence, in which the life of whole peoples is degraded and trampled upon? What are the roots of this remarkable contradiction? We can find them in an, in an overall assessment of a cultural and moral nature, beginning with the mentality which carries the concept of subjectivity to an extreme and even distorts it and recognizes as a subject of rights only the person who enjoys full or at least incipient autonomy and who emerges from a state of total dependence on others. But how can we reconcile this approach with the exaltation of man as a being who is not to be used? The theory of human rights is based precisely on the affirmation that the human person, unlike animals and things, cannot be subjected to domination by others. We must also mention the mentality which tends to equate personal dignity with the capacity for verbal and explicit, or at least perceptible, communication. It is clear that on the basis of these presuppositions, there is no place in the world for anyone who, like the unborn or the dying, is a weak element in the social structure, or for anyone who appears completely at the mercy of others, and radically dependent on them, and can only communicate through the silent language of a profound sharing of affection. In this case, it is force which becomes the criterion for choice and action in interpersonal relations and in social life. But this is the exact opposite of what a state ruled by law as a community in which the reasons of force are replaced by the force of reason, historically intended to affirm. At another level, the roots of the contradiction between the solemn affirmation of human rights and their tragic denial in practice lies in a notion of freedom which exalts the isolated individual in an absolute way and gives no place to solidarity, to openness to others, and service of them. While it is true that the taking of life not yet born, or in its final stages, is sometimes marked by a mistaken sense of altruism and human compassion, it cannot be denied that such a culture of death, taken as a whole, betrays a completely individualistic concept of freedom, which ends up by becoming the freedom of the strong against the weak, who have no choice but to submit. It is precisely in this sense that Cain's answer to the Lord's question, where is Abel your brother, can be interpreted. I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, every man is his brother's keeper because God entrusts us to one another. And it is also in view of this entrusting that God gives everyone freedom 
a freedom which possesses an inherently relational dimension. This is a great gift of the Creator, placed as it is at the service of the person and of his fulfillment through the gift of self and openness to others. But when freedom is made absolute in an individualistic way, it is emptied of its original content and its very meaning and dignity are contradicted. There is an even more profound aspect which needs to be emphasized. Freedom negates and destroys itself and becomes a factor leading to the destruction of others when it no longer recognizes and respects its essential link with the truth. When freedom, out of a desire to emancipate itself from all forms of tradition and authority, shuts out even the most obvious evidence of an objective and universal truth, which is the foundation of personal and social life, then the person ends up by no longer taking as the sole and indisputable point of reference for his own choices the truth about good and evil, but only his subjective and changeable opinion, or indeed his selfish interest and whim. This view of freedom leads to a serious distortion of life in society, If the promotion of the self is understood in terms of absolute autonomy, people inevitably reach the point of rejecting one another. Everyone else is considered an enemy from whom one has to defend oneself. Thus, society becomes a mass of individuals placed side by side, but without any mutual bonds. Each one wishes to assert himself independently of the other and, in fact, intends to make his own interests prevail. Still, in the face of other people's analogous analogous interests, some kind of compromise must be found if one wants a society in which the maximum possible freedom is guaranteed to each individual. In this way, any reference to common values and to a truth absolutely binding on everyone is lost, and social life ventures on to the shifting sands of complete relativism. At that point, everything is negotiable. Everything is open to bargaining even the first of the fundamental rights, the right to life. This is what is happening, also at the level of politics and government. The original and inalienable right to life is questioned or denied on the basis of a parliamentary vote or the will of one part of the people, even if it is the majority. This is the sinister result of a relativism which reigns unopposed. The right ceases to be such because it is no longer firmly founded on the inviolable dignity of the person, but is made subject to the will of the stronger part. In this way, democracy, contradicting its own principles, effectively moves toward a form of totalitarianism. The state is no longer the common home, where all can live together on the basis of principles of fundamental equality, but is transformed into a tyrant state which arrogates to itself the right to dispose of the life of the weakest and most defenseless members, from the unborn child to the elderly, in, name, in the name of a public interest, which is really nothing but the interest of one part. The appearance of the strictest respect for legality is maintained, at least when the laws permitting abortion and euthanasia are the result of a ballot in accordance with what are generally seen as the rules of democracy. Really, what we have here is only the tragic caricature of legality, 
The democratic ideal, which is only truly such when it acknowledges and safeguards the dignity of every human person, is betrayed in its very foundations. How is it still possible to speak of the dignity of every human person when the killing of the weakest and most innocent is permitted? In the name of what justice is the most unjust of discriminations practiced? Some individuals are held to be deserving of defense and others are denied that dignity. When this happens, the process leading to the breakdown of a genuinely human coexistence and the disintegration of the state itself has already begun. To claim the right to abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia, and to recognize that right in law means to attribute to human freedom a perverse and evil significance, that of an absolute power over others and against others. This is the death of true freedom. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And from your face I shall be hidden, the eclipse of the sense of God and of man. In seeking the deepest roots of the struggle between the culture of life and the culture of death, we cannot restrict ourselves to the perverse idea of freedom mentioned above. We have to go to the heart of the tragedy being experienced by modern man, the eclipse of the sense of God and of man typical of a social and cultural climate dominated by secularism, which, with its ubiquitous tentacles, succeeds at times in putting Christian communities themselves to the test. Those who allow themselves to be influenced by this climate easily fall into a sad, vicious circle. When the sense of God is lost, there is also a tendency to lose the sense of man, of his dignity, and his life. In turn, the systematic violation of the moral law, especially in the serious matter of respect for human life and its dignity, produces a kind of progressive darkening of the capacity to discern God's living and saving presence. Once again, we can gain insight from the story of Abel's murder by his brother. After the curse imposed on him by God, Cain thus addresses the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me this day away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden, and I shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will slay me. Cain is convinced that his sin will not obtain pardon from the Lord, and that his inescapable destiny will be to have to hide his face from him. If Cain is capable of confessing that his fault is greater than he can bear, it is because he is conscious of being in the presence of God and before God's just judgment. It is really only before the Lord that man can admit his sin and recognize its full seriousness. Such was the experience of David, who, after having committed evil in the sight of the Lord and being rebuked by the prophet Nathan, prophet Nathan exclaimed, My offenses truly I know them. My sin is always before me. Against you alone have I sinned. What is evil in your sight I have done. Consequently, when the sense of God is lost, the sense of man is also threatened and poisoned. 
as the Second Vatican Council concisely states. Without the Creator, the creature would disappear. But when God is forgotten, the creature grows unintelligible. Man is no longer able to see himself as mysteriously different from other earthly creatures. He regards himself merely as one more living being, as an organism which at most has reached a very high state of perfection. Enclosed in the narrow horizon of his physical nature, he is somehow reduced to being a thing and no longer grasps the transcendent character of his existence as man. He no longer considers life as a splendid gift of God, something sacred entrusted to his responsibility and thus also to his loving care and veneration. Life itself becomes a mere thing, which man claims as his exclusive property, completely subject to his control and manipulation. Thus, in relation to life at birth or at death, man is no longer capable of posing the question of the truest meaning of his own existence, nor can he assimilate with genuine freedom these crucial moments of his own history. He is concerned only with doing and using all kinds of technology. He busies himself with programming, controlling, and dominating birth and death. Birth and death, instead of being primary experiences demanding to be lived, become things to be merely possessed or rejected. Moreover, once all reference to God has been removed, it is not surprising that the meaning of everything else becomes profoundly distorted. Nature itself, from being mater, mother, is now reduced to being matter and is subjected to every kind of manipulation. This is the direction in which a certain technical and scientific way of thinking, prevalent in present-day culture, appears to be leading, when it rejects the very idea that there is a truth of creation which must be acknowledged, or a plan of God for life which must be respected. Something similar happens when concern about the consequences of such a freedom without law leads some people to the opposite position of a law without freedom as, for example, in ideologies which consider it unlawful to interfere in any way with nature, practically divinizing it. Again, this is a misunderstanding of nature's dependence on the plan of the Creator. Thus, it is clear that the loss of contact with God's wise design is the deepest root of modern man's confusion, both when this loss leads to a freedom without rules and when it leaves man in fear of his freedom. By living as if God did not exist, man not only loses sight of the mystery of God, but also of the mystery of the world and the mystery of his own being. The eclipse of the sense of God and of man inevitably leads to a practical materialism which breeds individualism, utilitarianism, and hedonism, here, too, we see the permanent validity of the words of the Apostle. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a base mind and to improper conduct. The values of being are replaced by those of having. The only goal which counts is the pursuit of one's own material well-being, the so-called quality of life, is interpreted primarily or exclusively as economic efficiency, inordinate consumerism, physical beauty and pleasure. 
to the neglect of the more profound dimensions, interpersonal, spiritual, and religious, of existence. In such a context, suffering, an inescapable burden of human existence, but also a factor of possible personal growth, is censored, rejected as useless, indeed opposed as an evil, always and in every way to be avoided. When it cannot be avoided and the prospect of even some future well-being vanishes, then life appears to have lost all meaning, and the temptation grows in man to claim the right to suppress it. Within this same cultural climate, the body is no longer perceived as a properly personal reality, a sign and a place of relations with others, with God and with the world. It is reduced to pure materiality. It is simply a complex of organs, functions, and energies to be used according to the sole criteria of pleasure and efficiency. Consequently, sexuality too is depersonalized and exploited from being the sign, place, and language of love, that is, of the gift of self and acceptance of another in all the other's richness as a person. It increasingly becomes the occasion and instrument for self-assertion and the selfish satisfaction of personal desires and instincts. Thus, the original import of human sexuality is distorted and falsified, and the two meanings, unitive and procreative, inherent in the very nature of the conjugal act, are artificially separated. In this way, the marriage union is betrayed, and its fruitfulness is subjected to the caprice of the couple. Procreation then becomes the enemy to be avoided in sexual activity. If it is welcomed, this is only because it expresses a desire or indeed the intention to have a child at all costs, and not because it signifies the complete acceptance of the other and therefore an openness to the richness of life which the child represents. In the materialistic perspective described so far, interpersonal relations are seriously impoverished. The first to be harmed are women, children, the sick or suffering, and the elderly. The criterion of personal dignity, dignity, which demands respect, generosity, and service, is replaced by the criterion of efficiency, functionality, and usefulness. Others are considered not for what they are, but for what they have, do, and produce. This is the supremacy of the strong over the weak. It is at the heart of the moral conscience that the eclipse of the sense of God and of man with all its various and deadly consequences for life, is taking place. It is a question, above all, of the individual conscience as it stands before God in its singleness and uniqueness. But it is also a question, in a certain sense, of the moral conscience, quote-unquote, of society. In a way, it too is responsible, not only because it tolerates or fosters behavior contrary to life, but also because it encourages the culture of death creating and consolidating actual structures of sin which go against life. The moral conscience, both individual and social, is today subjected, as a result of the penetrating influence of the media, to an extremely serious and mortal danger, that of confusion between good and evil, precisely in relation to the fundamental right to life. A large part of contemporary society looks sadly like that humanity, which Paul describes in his letter to the Romans. It is composed of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth, having denied God, and believing that they can build the earthly city without him. 
they become futile in their thinking, so that their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, carrying out works deserving of death. And they not only do them, but approve those who practice them. When conscience, the bright lamp of the soul, calls evil good and good evil, it is already on the path to the most alarming corruption and the darkest moral blindness. And yet all the conditioning and efforts to enforce silence fail to stifle the voice of the Lord, echoing in the conscience of every individual. It is always from this intimate sanctuary of the conscience that a new journey of love, openness, and service to human life can begin. Next time, part three of chapter one.